Good evening. Thank you. I'd like to welcome you to 40 Days of Purpose, 40 Days in the Word, I mean. And I'm excited to be here uh, today to give you a look at how to study the Bible. I hope you've been keeping up with our daily devotionals, keeping up with your small group commitment during the church-wide campaign. And let's just review for a minute where we have been. In week number one, we talked about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Seven reasons why you know that you can trust the Bible is God's Word. In week number two, we looked at the Bible's foundation. Seven reasons God gave us the Bible and what it does in our life and how God wants to use it to transform us. Last week, in week number three, we looked at illumination. That's how God shows me what He wants me to see, how the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds as we read the Scriptures. And if you've missed any of these messages, I invite you to go out to our uh, information table. We've got CDs out there. Uh, We make them pretty reasonable. Pick yourself up the messages that you've missed because they're very much worth hearing. And this is week four in our our 40 days. And we're going to look at how to do a Bible study. I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible to do a Bible study on your own. I hope you caught that. I'm not just going to stand here and teach you the Bible study. I'm going to teach you how to do the Bible study. And I hope that makes sense to you. The key to Bible study is learning how to ask good questions. Good questions are the key to understanding it. The more you bombard a text with questions, the more you're going to get out of it. And remember this. The Bible is a supernatural book. It is God's very words. You are never going to examine a text and get to the end. The end does not exist when it comes to the study of God being infinite. So as many times as you look at a passage, God can open up your eyes to see new things. As I said, the secret of Bible study is simply learning how to ask the right kinds of questions. There are different kinds of questions for different kinds of studies. Um, If you're doing a narrative study, a a story where there's back and forth dialogue, you will ask different questions than if if you're looking at a poetical portion of the Scripture. However, no matter which Bible study method you're using, Um, and the different questions that apply there, there are four big questions that you see in every Bible study. Four big questions you need to go through in order to understand the text. And today, I'm going to teach you from those four questions and show you how to use them. So, pull out your outlines if you don't have them out already. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the questions, and then we will come back and explain them. The first step in Bible study is observation. And in observation, you ask, what does it say? That's all. It's just real simple. You look at it, you say, what do I see? What do I see going on here? You're not trying to understand it. You're not trying to interpret it. You're not trying to see what else the Bible has to say about it. All you're saying is, what do I see as I'm reading? Okay? Remember, though, that... The difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible is simply the use of a pen and paper. If you're, if you're just reading through, you're not studying. You're reading. 
If you want to study, you've got to write some things down. You've got to be taking notes. You've got to be keeping some sort of record. And you need to write the things that you see in order to have a study. Just write down, I see this. It says that. Look here. Just write those things down. You'll come back to them, but just write down what you see. That's the first step of Bible study. The second step of Bible study is interpretation. And interpretation asks this question, what does it mean? What does it mean? But first, you look and see what it says. Now you're going to ask, what does it mean? People say oftentimes, doesn't the Bible just mean what it says? Well, most of the time, yes, but not always. But this is always true. The Bible means what it means. Okay? It means what it means. That's called the author's intended meaning. You may want to write that down somewhere. The Bible means exactly what the author intended it to mean. And that is the only meaning that it can have. So as I observe what it says and try to understand what the author was trying to tell me, what it means. That brings us to the third step, which is correlation. And correlation just simply asks the question, is there anything else? What else does God's Word say about this? Is there anything else? And I begin to ask those questions about what, I'm, what I've observed and where I can find them in the Scriptures. How do other verses explain it? That's called correlation. Now, the best way to do correlation is to look at a, at, a, at a Bible in a different paraphrase. Okay? To see it, to see it, come back to it in a different paraphrase. But we're going to come back to that because what we understand is that the Bible is best interpreted by itself. If you don't understand something, if it's unclear, go to a passage where, you, where it talks of the same thing where you know it's clear. And then look back on the one that's a little uncertain. Okay? But you, you can easily interpret the Bible from the Bible. Ah, the fourth step. The fourth step in study is called application. And application asks this, what does it mean to me? Okay, what does it mean to me? We can't stop short here. It's not just about what we put in our head. It's about what we do with what we've learned. So to review, what does it say? What does it mean? What other verses explain it? And what does it mean to me? Okay? Those are the four questions that you'll ask no matter what kind of uh, type of study you're doing, no matter what type of passage you're looking at. You're going to see those four questions. Now, now that we've got that groundwork, we're going to go back, we're going to look at a text, and we're going to, and we're going to put these to work. And here's what we're going to do. Early in our reading, our 40 Days of Purpose, we read through the book of Philippians in week number one. We read through that book. Philippians is a great book. There are a lot of well-known passages in Philippians, and we're not going to look at any of those. We're going to look at what I would consider kind of the flyby text. You get to them, you read them, go, oh yeah, that's done. Go on. And we're on to the next exciting, next big text. And I'm going to show you that sometimes as we read, we miss things that if we stop and apply these four questions to, we're going to see some things just open up before our eyes. And the text that we're going to look at today, to me, is one of those texts. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Before we read it, we're going to read it out loud. 
I want to just give you a little bit of background. Paul the Apostle is writing this letter from Rome. Paul is the guy who wrote the majority by number of the New Testament books. He wrote probably 14, perhaps 15 of the New Testament books. Right now, he's in prison in Rome for doing missionary work. He's due to appear before Caesar in court, and he's being held in jail until that court time. He's hoping that one day he's going to be released and be able to go back and visit all of the churches that he's planted, churches that he started. But because he can't do that, the only thing he can do is write him some letters. And that's what he's doing. This is one of the several letters that he wrote from that prison in Rome. And he's sending it to people in a city called Philippi, which is a city in Greece. And therefore, because he's sending it to the Philippi, the name of the letter is the Philippians. When he wrote to the people in the area of Galatia, that's called the letter of the Galatians. When he wrote to the church in the city of Corinth, that's called First and Second Corinthians. Yeah, you guys, you guys are pretty good. You're picking this up. These are real letters to real people in real places. Okay, we need to understand that. And as we read that, we need to keep that in mind. These were written from somebody to somebody with an intention, okay? And it's what that author's intention is a very important part of what we want to see in the letters. Now, there's a guy in here. Um, his name is Epaphroditus. And we're going to learn a lot about Epaphroditus today. And I just wanted to give you that name before we're, I'm going to ask you to read it together with me. And I wanted to make sure that you knew how to spell Epaphroditus before we're reading out loud and then suddenly I'm the only one reading. Okay? I just, want, I just didn't want to do that because <clears throat> it'd be embarrassing to all of us, especially me, if I mispronounced it. Um, so Epaphroditus is the guy who's in there. Epaphroditus, the only thing, the few things we know about him is he's a Gentile. He grew up in a Gentile, in a pagan home, and he's named after a pagan god, Epaphrodite. Okay? That's all that we know about his background. Okay? We've got a little bit for him here, and we're going to see a little bit about him in a little bit. But we know that he came from a pagan home, but at this point, he loves Jesus, and he's serving Jesus. Okay? Those are the things that we know about him. All right. Here we go. We're going to read through Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. So I invite you to follow along with me as we read. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. 
Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord and with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Wow. Considering some of the other things that are in this text, it's pretty amazing. I kind of picture the excitement level like this. In chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul talks about, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In chapter 2, it talks about, have the same mind in you that also is in Christ, who thought it not robbery to be equal to God, but made himself a servant. His name is exalted, highly exalted above all. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I'm sending Timothy to you with this thank you note. Kind of falls flat, doesn't it? And oftentimes, that's how we treat the readings in the Scriptures. We hit those high points and those highlights, and pow, we are just thrilled. We are excited. Man, is this good. And we get to the things like this and go, okay, I read it. Let's go. Moving on. Nothing to see here. But that's just not how it goes. If you think that, boy, you think you're not you're not quite catching it, and you just need to spend some serious time with what with what we've got to do. All right. So let's do that. Let's go back, take a look at this passage in Philippians chapter two, and go through the four steps. What does it say? What does it mean? What else in the Bible says something about it? And what does the Bible passage mean to me? First, we're going to start with what does it say, okay? I would begin personally, if I was going to study a text, by reading it three, four, five times. You want to read it several times through, because if I just read it one time through, I'm going to miss things. I'll get caught on something, and it's going to fixate my attention, and I'm, I'm going to get stuck on that idea all the way through. So I need to read it two, three, four maybe even a little bit more, depending on my familiarity with it. I'm not very familiar. I need to read it a few more times. And when I go through here, I quickly make some observations. The first observation I make is that Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. He's going to send two men to Philippi, okay? Um, nothing fancy about it, nothing spiritual. He just says, I hope to send you Timothy, and I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. And when he says back to you, that implies that Epaphroditus came from the church at Philippi in the first place. Timothy was with Paul. Epaphroditus was with the Philippians. They sent him over. Now Paul wants to send these two guys back. Okay? The second thing I observe about him, very simple, just making an observation, is that Paul endorses these guys as role models. As role models. These are guys who deserve honor. Paul says to Timothy, I have no one else like him. Now that's an endorsement, is it not? The great Apostle Paul, the guy who's taken the word of God throughout all of Asia and parts of Europe, walking within his lifetime, says, no one like this guy. That's a pretty high level endorsement. 
Okay? This guy is a role model. Paul's putting him out there as being a leader in, within, within the Christian community. He goes on to say about Epaphroditus in verse 29. Welcome him and honor all men like him. Honor men like him. Okay? So he says, when you see somebody like Epaphroditus, you make sure to you honor him. Boy, that's unusual. What a unique characteristic for, for a guy like Paul to say, honor these guys. There's no one like them. These guys are both high-end in their Christian faith. They are both people that are worth following, worth being the leaders within a church. Now, I want you to go back, see the phrases in there, like him, within that text. He's supposed to circle them. Circle them. Paul says, I have no one else like him, meaning Timothy. And then he says, honor men like him. That would be Epaphroditus. And that makes me wonder, I have this next question in my head, so what does it mean to be like these guys? If I wanted to be a guy that Paul would say, hey, he's number one. He's on the A-list. What is that characteristic? What are those like? And men, I'm going to hit you on this one because we're talking about men here. These are what godly men are like. And Paul's going to give us some things that make godly men so special, that make them worthy of honor. So I'd go back through the text, and I'd start reading it again with that in mind. That would be my goal. What are some things that I learned about Timothy? What are some things that I learned about Epaphroditus? Well, we learned five things. On Timothy, we see that he has a genuine interest in you, and he has proven himself. Those are a couple things that we see about Timothy. About Epaphroditus, it says he's my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Okay? Three word pictures here that you're going to want to explore and take a look at. And then it says in Epaphroditus, he longs for you and he is distressed, talking about a state of mind. And also in the last verses it says he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. So, do you see what I've done? I've made some observations. I've, got, I've thrown no under interpretation into them yet. All I've done is said, this is what I see in the text. I see two men. I see two men that are, that are, that are proven themselves, that are, that are exceptional. And I see five characteristics of these two men. You can see a study developing here. Guys, you can see that there's something in here that we're going to learn. We're going to learn from. Because, because the Scripture is speaking to us. All right. That's what observation does. Observation asks, what does it say? What do I see? Now, the next step, we go to interpretation. And it asks, what does it mean? What does it mean? This passage is an extremely powerful passage because it does give us five characteristics of what it's like to be a man of God. And if you want to be the kind of person that God is blessing, the kind of person that God is using, if you want God's power in your life, then you would better study this passage. Because God's telling you, these are the guys that are on the A-list for me. These are five characteristics of the man or woman of God. So let's go back and just, and just fly through these five characteristics. In this first one, in verse 21, the first characteristic Paul says about Timothy, I've got no one else like him. Why? Well, he, go, he, he answers that question. He says, because he takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everybody else is only looking out for their own. Well, that's not unique to the first century, is it? You know people like that. They're not looking out for your welfare. 
they're only looking out for their own welfare. So if somebody, if a man is looking out for somebody else's welfare, that is something that makes him special, that sets him apart. Now, this... Um, Let me, just, let me just throw in a little help here. To try to help you understand what some of these words mean, kind of get a, 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 a... The easiest way to do that is to look at the verse in other translations, which brings up the whole question of why do we have so many translations. But well, we're blessed to have so many translations. Let me just say that. Okay? Because what it allows us to do is to get a flavor of the text without actually knowing the original languages. Look at this one verse that's up on the screen in three different translations. Okay? Um, he looks at, he's, he has your, your welfare and interest in mind, and, and the, another translation says, he genuinely cares for you. And then another, talking about the other guys, is they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. Hey, those other translations, they don't change the meaning. They just add color to it. They add flavor to it. They just expand, give you a bigger picture of what the meaning's all about. So one of the ways to really understand what, what a text is saying is to compare it in other scriptures. And there's a simple reason for that, and that is, anytime you make a translation, it's hard to take a, an original word and bring it into your culture and your language. For instance, the word love. In English, we've got one word, love. Hey, I love Jesus Christ. I love my wife. I love ice cream. I love music. I love the bears. All of those are different types of love, though we only have one word. Now, in the Greek language, it's more precise. They have four separate words for each of those categories of love that I just gave you above. So to understand which category, to get the bigger picture of, an under, of, a, of, a, of a translation, it may be best to try looking in other translations to give you flavor, to give you color, to open up the understanding of what a word means, okay? Now, these aren't going to change meanings. It's not going to change the understanding of the text. It's just going to give you a bigger picture of, of the flavor that's behind the original languages without doing the 8 to 12 years of study necessary to learn those languages well, okay? You get to use somebody else's study time, somebody else's abilities. So, we find that he is caring, that, 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 that a godly man is caring. Now, Timothy had a genuine concern about the people that Paul was doing ministry to. And Paul acknowledged that, and he acknowledged that everybody else were only looking out for their own interests, their own business, and their own agenda. And Paul says that is an important message for our day. Because every, everything in our culture teaches us to be self-centered and not unselfish. Everything in our culture teaches us to care only about you. Advertisement says it all. We do it all for you. Have it your way. You deserve the best. You deserve a break today. Okay, you probably know where all of those slogans came from. But the point is, is it's all about you. Nothing teaches us that it's not about you. It's about, your, about, about what you do for other people. Okay? Nothing in music, movies, TV shows, novels, magazines, video games, nothing tells you that it's not about you. But every one of those things are reinforcing the message is, hey, listen, it's all about you. So it's rare to find an unselfish 
man. The second thing we learn about Timothy, it says that Timothy has proved himself. Circle that word, proved himself. He has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. In God's word translation, it says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. The word proven means he was tested. The Bible calls that faithful. Hey, he's not a person who flip-flop. Okay? He, he knows how to keep his word. He knew how to do what he said he would. He kept his promises even when it hurt. And you know, we need men who are consistent like that. We need men who, who have integrity. And you know, trait number two, God is looking for men who are caring, and God is looking for men who are consistent. Proven, trustworthy, not wishy-washy, dependable, faithful, keep your word, men of conviction, men who are consistent. And you know what? Today, Christ's church needs men like that desperately. Desperately. We need godly men who not just care, but are proven reliable. They're consistent and they're faithful. The third observation I want to make, Paul says, I send back to you, Paphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. He gives us three metaphors here, all of which are relational. Each of these metaphors has something in common. They each have a various level of cooperation, which is our third point. A godly man is cooperative. Paul said, hey, listen, he's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. Why would he use those words? Because the Christian life is like a family. It's a fellowship, and it's a fight. First, as a family, he says, he's my brother. 133 times in the Bible, it refers to Christians as my brother or my sister in a family type of terms. But not only are we family, but we're a fellowship. We're a fellowship. We're fellow workers. Listen, fellowship is not sharing a meal or getting together and having a party. Hey, that's social life. That's fun. That's the good times. Fellowship means that we share the same task. We share the same mission. We share the same great commission. We work together. We serve together. Fellowship has nothing to do with snacks and parties. So not only are we co-laborers in arms, we're comrades in arms. We're fellow soldiers. We have the same battle. We have the same enemy, Satan, the evil one. So we are to support each other. We're to encourage each other. And you know what? As a church, that's why we have small groups. We have small groups so we can encourage each other. We can build each other up. We can, we can bring our wounds from battle together to be a place where we can be, to be prayed for, to be strengthened, and to be encouraged. A godly man is a cooperative man. Okay? He's one who works together as a team. He's not a lone ranger. Godly men cooperate. They know how to work with others. They know how to be a team player. So, he's caring. He notices other people's needs and not just his own. A godly man is consistent. You can count on him to keep his word. And a godly man is cooperative. So the fourth observation that we see, it talks about Epaphroditus, and it says, for he longs for you, and he is distressed because you heard he was ill. Note, this is emotional. He was distressed. Okay? Here's why he was distressed. The church over in Greece in Philippi wanted to send this love offering over to Paul, 800 miles away. There's no planes, trains, or automobiles. You can't get there from here unless you walk. 
800 miles, not real nice, lots of bad guys, bandits, people who want to take anything of value, people who want to beat you up and leave you. Epaphroditus said, I'm good, let's go, I'll take this. Paul needs it, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. Imagine being a business owner, saying for the next three months I'm leaving the shop. I'm, I'm gone. Family, kids, hey, we'll see you. See you, see you later in the year. Along the way, he gets sick, almost dies. People in Philippi hear about it, and they are bummed out. Imagine how we would feel. We send somebody over on a mission trip. We hear they're in intensive care. They're about to die. How are we going to feel about it? Man, we're going to feel bummed out about it. But when Epaphroditus heard that the sending church was all emotional and distressed and bummed out by it, it bummed him out. He was distressed at their distress. He was worried about their worry. He was anxious about their anxiety. And he cared for these guys. He loved these guys. And you know the fourth characteristic of a godly man is he is considerate. He's considerate. He's not just thinking... About, about himself. He's thinking about others, and not just about what they do, he's thinking about how they feel. He's, he's even, you know, he's concerned about what they do, but he's beyond that. He's looking at, hey, how are these guys, and these guys are emotional, they're distressed, they're distraught. This is, that's breaking me up. So he wants to try to be a guy who acts in such a way as to put others at ease and not to get them, not to get them all worked up. Hey, what about you and I? Are we distressed about other people's distress? Are we worried about other people's worries? Or are we just, hey, listen, I've got my own worries, you deal with yours. You know, I, where, where are we considerate of what other people are going through? A godly man is considerate. He's concerned about the feelings of others. The fifth observation, verse 27. Indeed, talking about Epaphroditus, he was ill. He almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. He says, you guys in Philippi, you guys couldn't all come. You couldn't get on the church bus and, and, and drive over here and help me out. You guys all couldn't do it, so you sent Epaphroditus to me. And, man, you, and, and he almost died. He almost made the ultimate sacrifice. He risked his life. Circle that. Risking his life. Okay, He risked his life to come to Paul. Because, boy, that's our fifth characteristic. The first one is he's caring, he's consistent, he's cooperative, he's considerate. Number five, a godly man is courageous. He is courageous. He risked his life, almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to help the cause of Christ and the Apostle Paul. Wow. But notice what he was being risky about. He wasn't risky the fact that he climbed mountains. He wasn't risking his life in the fact that he surfed enormous waves. Or he bet on business deals that he's going to benefit from. He wasn't a thrill seeker risking his life. He risked his life for the cause of Christ. He risked his life for something that was bigger than him. And that is a courage that is rare. And as, as wanting to be godly men, we need to develop our courage and our strength so that we are ready to risk our life for Jesus Christ. Wow. It's, it's, it's no wonder to see that Paul is lifting these two guys up and saying, wow, these guys are role models. Men, 
follow after these guys. Follow after these guys. Listen, it, it, it could have, it could have, Epaphroditus could have had a ton of excuses. Got business, got family, kids are in school, kids are in sports. Man, he could have had a ton of reasons why he said no thank you to this. But he took the task, he took, he took the challenge. And his real character was shown. Alright, so we're only to the second stage, interpretation. It's going to go a little quicker. Interpretation says, what does it mean? It says, um, first of all, we see these people are worthy of honor. What kind of people are worthy of honor? People who are caring, commit, committed, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. And before we get too far, I want to give you a quick rule of interpretation. Okay? Context. The number one rule of interpretation is context. Just write that down. Think about it. Everything was written within a context. Too many people get in trouble with Bible study when they start ripping things out without looking at the bigger picture. Okay? Because remember, what the Bible means is the origin is what the original author intended it to say. And you learn that through reading con- reading the context, not just pulling something out here and there. Okay? Now, the third thing we want to talk about is correlation. Correlation. Correlation, we ask, hey, is there anything else in the Bible that helps me understand this? Well, uh, yeah, especially about this guy, Timothy. Timothy's got two books written to him, First and Second Timothy. He starts his mention in Acts 16. Epaphroditus, hey, not so much. He's just mentioned a little bit later in this book, in Philippians chapter 4. But we want to take a look and we want to see, hey, what does the Bible say about these, about what I'm studying in other places? And there are other places. There are other things you can do. We've got these five character qualities, right? Let's take a look at those. We can look at those and see what, is, what does the Bible say about courage? What does the Bible say about being considerate? We can take a look at those. And we can take this one little study and we can open this thing up to a huge place. Okay? We can, if, we, if we wanted to go there, there's a lot of room that we could roam on this. But correlation says, hey, what does the Bible say about these things? Now, in order to do that, you have to have something called a concordance. You can get one of these wherever you get at wherever you buy your books. Um, but a concordance is simply an alphabetic word index. It lists every word in the Bible. If you've got a study Bible, you've got a little mini concordance in your back. It's just a wee little guy. Okay? It doesn't have every word. But they have those. They're called exhaustive concordances. They're thick and they're big. You can hurt somebody with them. Okay? They're big books. Or... The easiest way to do it is to just use uh, software specifically de- specifically developed to, um, to look into the Bible and different translations and to be able to do word searches. There's two or three or four good ones out there. Just, you know, find one of those, and, and that's the easiest way to get those indexes of words, to find out where Timothy's listed, where Epaphroditus is listed, where the word considerate is found, Okay. Um, the Bible, the Bible tools are filled. Uh, there's so many Bible tools in your Bible study guide for your small group. There's a whole section on Bible study tools. Read that, so I don't have to read it to you. Okay, read that. Now, let me just give you a word of caution about correlation. Correlation is a one-way street. You can only look backwards. I'll give you a real quick illustration of that. Okay, the guys in the New Testament. They could look back in the Old Testament and say, you know, oh, this is what the prophet was saying when he wrote. But the guys in the Old Testament, they can't see the New Testament. 
So you can only correlate going backwards. You can't correlate going forwards. Because those guys who wrote that previous didn't have the future to look at. Okay? So to get the best understanding, make sure you get everything, you get the things in chronological order. Those guys would have loved to have seen the New Testament while they were writing the Old. They would have loved to have seen that. They didn't have it to reference. Okay? So we need to be careful when we're referencing when we're, when we're referencing that we're only looking back. Alright. A word of caution. Finally, we're coming to the fourth thing in the Bible study, which is application. And this actually is the most important thing of all. Consider this cute little statement. You only believe the parts of the Bible you actually do. Isaiah, some of us Christians are real bold about, I believe every word of the Bible. Well, you only believe the parts you do, what you obey. If you're not obeying it, you don't believe it. Okay? That's just kind of a side note there. It's not enough to study the Bible. The Bible will give you a big brain and a little heart. You have got to do it. Look at what James 1.22 says. Do not deceive yourselves. Don't merely listen to the Word and, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You know, in our small groups, in, our, in, this, in this 40 Days in the Word, we've learned three study methods so far. We've learned three. The picture it method. Man, our group had a fun time with this. You know, if you were in small group, you know that you were one of the characters with the four guys that lowered them through. We had a great time with that. We enjoyed that as a small group. There was also the pronounce method, where you say one word, you overpronounce one word at a time, and then look at that. And last week, we looked at what's called space pets. Space pets. Yeah, I thought that was funny, too. Um, but, you know, it works. Uh, here, are, here are nine questions that you can ask. And that's going to be up there for a minute, so if you want to write, you can go ahead and write. But um, the best thing to do is just find that in your, in your weekly uh, small group guide. Is there a sin to confess? Hey, that'll help point us to a direction. Is there a promise to claim? An attitude to change? A command to obey? An example to follow? A prayer to pray in this verse? An error to avoid? A truth to believe? Is there something I can thank God for? You know what? Sometimes the answer to those questions is no. That's okay. They're just hard to help you find a direction. Find something that you can be, that you can apply to your life. Now, when you've gone through, you've asked those questions, it's time for you to write down an application. And you see those four P words? You need to make it personal. Don't write an application for your wife. Okay? It doesn't work. It needs to be practical. It needs to have real-life application. Okay? It needs to be practical. Um, it needs to be possible. You need to be able to do it. I want to reach the whole world for Jesus by next week. Great idea. Ain't going to happen. Okay? It's just not. It needs to be possible. Something you can do. And it needs to be provable. A week later, you need to be, look, be able to look back and say, Hey, I did it! I made it! I, I did it! And then by when is a deadline. And deadlines need to be short. Don't say like before I'm, you know, 80, I want to... Eh. For most of us, that's irrelevant. Okay? 80 is a long way out. Some of you, is a long way to go. But it's a long way out. Try seven days. By this time next week, I want to, boom, seven days is a good challenge time, okay? There are lots of things that you can do. A couple of things in here. There are men that Paul says that are godly men with characteristics that you should honor. So uh, what you can do this week is say, how can I show honor to a godly man? 
Listen, I'll tell you what, our heroes aren't on our iPods. They're not on our movie screens. Okay? They're not in our sports complexes. Our heroes are in our children's ministry classes and standing at our doors. And they're working at the sound booth. And they're doing work for the sake of the kingdom of God. Those are our heroes. Those are the ones that we need to honor, to lift up, and to say thank you. Those are the ones that we're to have our eyes on. How can we say thank you? That'd be a great application. Another application, look at one of those five C words. Okay, check and see. How are you doing? Are you, do you need to be more considerate? Do you need more courage this week? Do you, do, you, do you need to be more caring about people and not just your own agenda? Do you need to be more cooperative? Get, get on board instead of rocking the boat. You and God can work those things out. But you have to come up with an agenda. You've got to come up with, with a plan, a way that you can incorporate this into our life. Now, guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus, we desperately need guys like that today. We desperately need guys for you to be like that today. We need men in this church that are caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. You guys thought this was a flyover text. Just a little thank you note from one guy to another. And here we're getting hammered for being a man. How do we be a good man? You know what? When we stop and study the Bible, we find things. We find things that God wants to do in our life. We say, oh, man, how do I do this every day? Well, let me just say this. I don't think you can do a long study every day. Here's a good, here's a good way to think about this. Read every day. Study once a week. You do that, and a year from now, you'll look in your life's rearview mirror, and this day, which you made that commitment, will be so far back, and you will have grown in your faith so much, you won't even be able to see it. Read every day, study once a week, and you will be this kind of a man. You will be this kind of a woman. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is alive. It just shows us us. It shows us you. It shows us what we should do. And Father, I pray that you would just help each and every one of us to be studiers of the word, to be students of the scriptures, to be able to, to read it, to, to work it over in our minds, and to apply it to our lives in such a way that it grows us in our faith. And I pray for each and every one of us that we will find something each week, each day in your word that we can grab hold of and say, I believe this so much, I'm going to do it. I pray this in Jesus' name.